You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, uh, personally, I always get very excited anytime we get the opportunity to jump into a new section of a book that we're studying through. And so this morning, I'm pretty excited because we are jumping into a new section in the Gospel of Matthew, and one that's going to expose us to really a new and different aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus, and that particularly being his power and compassion as the king of God's kingdom. Hence the name of our series that will be in the next couple months, Jesus, King of Miracles. And here's what I especially get excited about. Uh, The fact is that there's a lot of people in this room that have gone through countless struggles in the last year and a half. Uh, I've talked to many people who have said that it's been among some of the biggest challenges that they've faced, that they have been overwhelmed at so many levels, that they have been discouraged, that they have felt totally defeated. And so what I love about this series is that it's going to take us into looking at the mercy and the compassion and the power of God at work towards those that are feeling the exact same way. And so as we go through this text, um, chapters 8 and 9, here's what I think will be clear that God is not only able to help you, but that he truly is willing to help you if you go to him in faith. That said, before we get into today's text, I just want to do two things. First, I want to remind you about the overarching theme of Matthew's gospel. I also just want to explain where we're at in the development of that theme. So, first, the theme of Matthew's gospel. Now, many of you might remember this, but Matthew's gospel all centers around one big idea, and that is on the kingdom of heaven, and most specifically, the king of that kingdom, who is Jesus Christ. So then, the development of that theme, let me just remind you where we've been, the first four chapters or so was all about introducing us to Jesus Christ and what makes him uniquely qualified to be the king of God's kingdom. So some of you have opened up your Bibles to Matthew and you've looked at chapter 1 and you've seen a long list of names. Remember why that was significant. It was all to prove that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be God's king because he comes from the proper bloodline. He has the proper ancestry. He has the proper parents and grandparents and grandparents and great-grandparents, right, and and that whole line. And then you move on and you say, oh, he's also uniquely qualified because of his unique coming, the way he enters the world, the way he fulfills prophecy, the way he uh, fulfills all of these predictions in the Old Testament. You move on into chapter 3, and you see he's also uniquely qualified because there's a messenger sent in front of him, one to prepare the way, John the baptizer, as we talked about earlier, who's going to be the one that says he is the one who is the coming Christ. He is the one that God's word has continued to talk about, one who I am not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. And then we see he is uniquely qualified because of how he overcomes temptation and where 
It seems that he's kind of living out Israel's experiences in the wilderness. But where Israel failed, Jesus does not. And therefore, he is the perfect king because he is able to be obedient at every point that human beings cannot and will not be. And then, after introducing us to that, then we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. This brought us into the first teaching section, the first teaching discourse of Jesus. And just to remind you, if you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and look in Matthew chapter 7 and look at verse 28. Our text last week ended with this. It says in verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, at the conclusion of the sermon, people are in awe over Jesus. Because they know, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, who would regularly quote other scholars and say, well, so-and-so said this, so it's true, and so-and-so said interpreted it this way, and so this is what you believe. Jesus doesn't do any of that, right? He's able to just say, this is what God meant by this, and this is how you should understand this. He didn't quote other rabbis. He didn't quote any scholars. He was able just to speak with authority because he was the true teacher, uh, the, the prophet that Moses talked about in the Old, Old Testament who would come and deliver the truth of God to God's people. And so I guess you could say the Sermon on the Mount was all about the authority of Jesus seen specifically through his teaching. Now today as we come into our new section, we are still looking at the authority of Christ. However, we're looking at Jesus' authority as seen through many miracles, actually 10 miracles to be exact, and all of them showing Jesus' power over sickness, suffering, Satan, sin, and nature. And in the midst of these miracles, another thing that we will also notice is that that there are four dialogues that Jesus has, one with two would-be disciples in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, another with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Another with John the Baptist's disciples in chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. And then another with Jesus' own disciples in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. But in everything, just remember, the authority of Jesus is our focus both in his miracles and in his teaching of what it means to be one of his disciples. And just to remind you, remember that the book of Matthew is kind of structured over five different discourses of Jesus. And so many say that just as Moses had his own five books of the Bible and Jesus is the new Moses, he comes and he has his five discourses. So the Sermon on the Mount was the first of five discourses. Now we're in a narrative section. When we're done with this narrative section, we'll be in another teaching section. When that teaching section is done, we're into another narrative section and so on and so forth. So there is the, there's an ebb and flow between discourse and narrative sections. So having considered then the big picture of Matthew, I want to now invite you to follow along with me as I read for us our primary text this morning in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So look there and follow along with me as I read for us. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, 
a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So here we are. Matthew says that Jesus has finished up the sermon, and he has descended the mountain. And sometime after the sermon is given then, what are we told happens next? Our text says, Behold, a leper came to him. Some translations actually say immediately a leper came to him, but I believe behold is probably best because I don't think it's Matthew's intention to say this happened you know, before Jesus was even out of, you know, able to catch his breath as he got down the mountain. Uh, Matthew's material is actually more thematic than it is chronological because, again, he's all putting a case together that Jesus is the coming king. So we can understand that Jesus came down the mountain and at some point afterwards, we don't know how long afterwards, but a a leper comes to him. In any case, I want you to imagine the scene. Remember that we're told that Jesus is being followed by great crowds, right? This is not the first time that we've heard about these crowds. If you've got your Bible, just turn on over to Matthew chapter 4. Because before the Sermon on the Mount was preached, we're told in verse 23 that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And verse 25, we're told, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the, and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So it was the first time that we were hearing about these large crowds and just remember that the crowds, they're continuing to grow. They're continuing to build. That The reputation of Jesus is spreading like a wildfire and people from farther and farther distances are coming because they just have to see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears all that they have heard from other people, all the testimonies that they have heard. They have got to check them out. They have got to see Jesus up close and in front of their own eyes. And it's important that we understand the size of crowd that we're around because you have to understand how shocking it would have been for a leper to show up, especially in the presence of all of these people. I have to imagine that if we were in the shoes of Jesus, that as, as he looks out, this is what it would have looked like, that as the crowds are surrounding him, all of a sudden he sees something like the parting of the Red Sea going on. But this isn't Moses, and this isn't the, the, part, the Red Sea actually clearing. This is just a man who's making his way towards Jesus, and everybody is just immediately trying to get out of the way. Nobody wants to have any chance of coming into contact with this leper and his leprosy lest they get it themselves. And so there's this big interruption in the crowd. 
At least this is what you would expect the people to be doing, given what leprosy was. I have a feeling most of us don't really comprehend leprosy, because the fact is, thanks to medical advances, it's something we don't have to face here in the United States, and it is very hard to find except in some third world countries. So I thought because of this, it might be helpful to hear Chuck Swindoll's explanation of leprosy based on his own experience of a time when he encountered it as he played with a military band at a leper village in the 1950s. This is how Swindoll described the disease. He said, quote, Numbness follows painful areas on the body, and soon the skin loses its color, and like the hair, it turns white and begins to be thick and glossy and scaly. Skin around the eyes and ears begins to bunch up with deep furloughs between the swelling so that the face begins to resemble that of a lion. To make all this worse, you could smell it, for the leper emits an unpleasant odor. If you're near a leper for too long, you begin to detect a peculiar taste in your mouth due to the foul odor. The disease begins to attack the larynx, so the leper's voice acquires a grating sound. The throat becomes increasingly more hoarse so that others not only can smell the leper, they can now hear the rasping voice. They were the ultimate outcast. You didn't get near a leper. If you were downwind, you had to be at least 150 feet away, and you wonder what the person is doing out in public. The hair was disheveled. The clothing is left in rags, usually barefoot, toes missing, fingers missing, often entire hands missing, lips are gone, the teeth protrude, the eyes stare. If a leper so much as put his head into a house, the, the house totally became unclean all the way to the roof beams. There was never any disease that so isolated an individual as leprosy. So as you can hear in Swindoll's explanation, leprosy was and is an absolutely awful disease. Again, it's one of the reasons we ought to be thankful that we don't need to encounter it today. However, like I said, it does exist in some third world countries. So if you want to get a look at what leprosy was like, you can Google leprosy. However, just know if you do that, you've been warned It is not a pretty picture. So if you're squeamish, I don't recommend doing it. And all of this is just to note the physical side effects of leprosy at this point, which in reality is just a small aspect of what made this disease so awful. We could also talk about the spiritual and the communal consequences of leprosy. In addition to the physical harm on his body, if you contracted leprosy, it also made you ceremonially unclean and as a result, unfit to worship the Lord. It also meant that you could no longer live among friends and family since you would immediately be sent to a leper village. So in a real way, taken together then, you probably understand that it marked the end of someone's life as they knew it. The end of their career, the end of their family affection, the end of family gatherings for birthdays or holidays, and just as significant, the end of worshiping together with God's people. Now, some today might think that that's not exactly a big 
consequence, but it was for them since gathering with God's people every week was the highlight of their experience for the week. And so sadly, this disease brought an end to all that, making someone an object of scorn and avoidance until the day that they were died, they died or were finally declared clean by a priest, which unfortunately never happened. So without a doubt, leprosy was the most alienating and shameful disease that anyone could contract, especially since many people even took it as a sign of God's judgment on you if you got it. People would think to themselves, well, what did this person do to deserve this? You see a bit of that come through in the book of Job, don't you? As Job is suffering and his health is stricken, his so-called friends continued to kind of pontificate. Well, Job, what did you do? You had to have done something. There's no way that you could go through this and experience this if you hadn't done something along the way. Add to this the fact that if you had leprosy, you were to walk around and everywhere you went, you were to shout out, you were to proclaim, unclean, unclean, unclean. So there was no sort of, maybe we'll just keep this thing under wraps. Maybe this could just stay between two of us or three of us, right? There was absolutely no hiding from it. So you can imagine what it would have been like then to wake up an Israelite or a Jew one morning only to find a strange mark on your skin. The next thing you would have to do then is go visit the priest. That's what was commanded in Leviticus 13, The priest was the one to inspect the mark and determine whether this was indeed leprosy or maybe something very non-threatening, such as psoriasis or something else, eczema. Can you imagine the fear of waiting for that verdict? Some of us can comprehend it. It would be like waiting for the verdict on whether we have got cancer or not. And you know that If it is the case that you've got leprosy, it's going to change everything about your life. And so all of these thoughts running through your mind, will I see my family again? Where will I sleep tonight? How are my loved ones going to be provided for? And of course, how bad is this going to get? Because it wasn't exactly a for sure time frame on how long you would have it until you died. It could be five years, it could be ten years. In some cases, it could be as long as 20 years. In any case, it was absolutely devastating news to receive because here's the deal, there was no cure for leprosy. And there was absolutely no medicine that could alleviate the symptoms. So if you were diagnosed with it, you need to understand you just received your death sentence. Understanding all of this then, put yourself in the shoes of this leper. This man was desperate, he was dejected, and he was depressed. He was despised, feared, and avoided. If anybody knew suffering and loneliness and trauma, it was this man, because he literally lost everything. His job, his family, his friends, his health all gone in a moment. And so what does he do? 
And despite how many negative opinions there must have been from people in the crowd, he is determined to make his way to Jesus. And so he runs up to Jesus, and he bows himself to the ground, and he says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. To get a stronger sense of what is happening here, I appreciate how Mark and Luke fill in a few more details of the story for us, since the story is also recorded in their Gospels. Mark tells us that this man actually implored Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Likewise, Luke says that this man fell on his face and begged that Jesus would heal him in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And so this man, he is pouring out his heart to Jesus, pleading with Jesus. At the same time, though, recognize what he's not doing. He's not making demands on Jesus. He's not manipulating Jesus. He's not giving a sort of ultimatum with Jesus or trying to make deals with Jesus. Well, if you do this for me, then I will also do this for you. There's none of that going on. He simply comes and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. This is a demonstration of true humility, isn't it? And you see humility expressed in three different ways in this story. First, you see his humility by virtue of his posture. The verb used to describe what he does here is the Greek word proskuneo, which is the word that's used most frequently in the New Testament to describe worship. So there's, there's debate. Is this man worshiping? There's good reason to believe that he is. In any case, though, he is bowed down and he is as low as you can get with his face down to the ground because he recognizes the supreme value of the person in front of him. And he esteems his position as one who is an authority over him. So he is showing humility by his posture. Secondly, he is showing humility by virtue of his address to Jesus. He calls him Lord. At a minimum, we know that this is calling him master. It could also be that he, he understands who Jesus is as the divine son of God. So he expresses that Jesus stands over him as Lord. Third, though, we also see his humility expressed in this way. He is humble in his request, isn't he? He, he knows God does not have to heal him. In fact, if anything, he is probably expecting that Jesus won't heal him. You're talking about a guy who is at the absolute lowest place in life. Who am I that Jesus would want to do this for me? He, he knows he has nothing to offer Jesus. Uh, he, he knows that there is no reason that Jesus would, would go, oh, well, look at all you've done, look at all that you're doing, look at all that you're producing, look at all that you've accomplished. None of that. If you will, you can make me clean. I think it's important to highlight this because this is so counterintuitive to what so many charismatic churches today teach, isn't it? What do I mean? The assumption by many churches today is that God's desire is always to heal. 
That God always wants to take away someone's infirmities or their disabilities. But is this true? According to this passage, clearly not. And the leper understood that. He comes forward and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. So there's no doubt at all whatsoever of Jesus' power. But there's this question of, are you willing to do this? This should, frankly, be the posture always of our heart, one of surrender to the perfect wisdom and plans of God. Jesus himself also modeled this in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? As he labored there in prayer, is there another way, Lord? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Some people would think that his question about the willingness of God would be seen as a symptom of a a weak faith. But is that the case? Not at all. It, It was faith that took him before Jesus. It was faith that led him to go through the crowds in spite of all of the social stigma, in spite of all the other people that would have said, what are you doing here? Unashamedly, he goes to Jesus. It was his faith being active all along. So here he is before Jesus. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And the question in his mind is, what's going to happen next, right? And what does happen next? To the surprise of this leper and to his amazement, Jesus not only is able to heal him, but he is also willing. Again, Mark is helpful here because he tells us why Jesus healed this man. Mark says Jesus was moved with pity. This means Jesus looked at this man and felt genuine sorrow for him, that he felt anguish for this man, that there was heartfelt sympathy in full effect in Jesus' actions. And so Jesus reaches out, and this is where Jesus does the absolute most shocking thing. The thing that as we read this text, we go, are you kidding me? He did that? What is it? He reaches out, and he touches the leper. He touches the leper. Just remember everything I just told you, right? I mean, the crowd certainly would have been avoiding this man because they knew that according to Leviticus 5.3, that if they touched this leper, then they immediately became unclean and they would have to undergo the same kind of treatment that this man went under. But here is Jesus touching the leper, this unclean man. But how can he do it? Because this is... God, very God. This is one who can touch an unclean leper, and not only does he not become unclean himself, but he makes the leper clean. He can remain free of defilement for himself, and at the same time, he can remove the defilement of those who are defiled and clear them, and cleanse them, and make them able to once again enter into the presence of God. And dear friends, this is good news, not only for the leper, 
but for those of us that are here today in this room, because here's the deal, every single person in this room is defiled. Every one of us has got a stain on our lives. And it may not be visible, but it is just as real and frankly more devastating than physical leprosy. This was something that Jesus had to try to get through time and time again. This was just something that the Pharisees didn't understand, right? They were always trying to avoid touching certain things and doing certain things, lest they become unclean. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, consistently said, you're so afraid of what you're going to touch and what you're going to eat and all this kind of stuff. Don't you get it? You're already unclean. We learn about this in Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees, listen to this, and the scribes, they asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Like they had a whole system that they had concocted themselves. It wasn't written of Moses. It wasn't, it wasn't written in the word of God. But a whole bunch of individuals said, well, you know, maybe this should be something we do so that we don't become defiled. Jesus is correcting his, their misunderstanding here. He said to them, are you also without Understanding, do you not see that whatever goes into, this comes into verse 18, do you not realize that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Verse 20, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Again, the point is clear. You don't have to worry about becoming defiled because it's already happened. You're defiled by your own sinful thoughts and desires and actions. And dear friends, that is true of us today in this room. How gracious and good it is to know, though, that Jesus himself is not afraid to touch the leper. Amen? How good it is to know that far from running away, Far from avoiding those who are unclean, he is willing not only to draw near, but to reach out with his own hands and to touch the leper. You see, this is why this is such a significant miracle to start things up in chapter 8. Because again, if you had leprosy, it was a death sentence. We've been given a death sentence. The moment that each of us were born into this life, we were born with a sinful nature, and we show that we have this sinful nature by our own sinful actions. What we deserve for these sinful actions is death itself, that we are immediately separated from God, deserving of his righteous wrath, of his righteous punishment for all eternity. 
Thank God that that's not where things remain. Thank God, though, that Jesus enters the scene and he is willing to cleanse us, to wash us, and make us once again able to be in God's fellowship and in God's presence. This is the hope of the gospel, that God sends his own son to stand in the place of sinners who frankly is treated as one who is unclean in order to make us clean. There is also in this text, I think, a great encouragement not only for us as sinners, but even for those of us who are victims. Those of us who have been affected by the sins of others. If we went around this room, no doubt there are plenty of stories that if people were honest, they would share and they would say, you don't even want to know what I've gone through. There are some in this room today that you feel like you're just, at times, that you're just baggage. That's how you've been treated your whole life. And you think like, what, what would anybody want to do with me if they knew what happened? Think. Thank the Lord that that's not the case with Jesus, that he knows everything about you, everything that you've gone through, everything that you've experienced, everything that you have done. He knows it all 100%, and he is still not ashamed to draw near to you. The question, though, is this, will you draw near to him? He is willing. He is able But are you willing to come to him like this leper? The beauty of it is that the reward for seeking Christ and coming to him in faith is clear. He is able to wash you. Perhaps you're thinking, well, but, 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 but why I want that healing? Listen, again, it's totally up to Jesus whether the healing happens or not. But this we know, here's the guarantee, that anybody who comes to him in faith is for sure offered this, they are offered eternal life. They are offered a restored relationship with the living God of the universe. And dear friends, if you have that, it will get you through everything else that you face. What this man was not offered in this moment was healing in every aspect of his life. He was cleansed, and that's what we need. We don't need a cure right now. We need a cleansing. We need a washing for our sin. The healing is future. The healing is coming. That's 100% guaranteed, taken care of by Jesus. But as we walk and we live in this world, are we going to be cured of everything? No. But we are offered a cleansing. So much that we could learn from this text. We need to see how this story ends. Look in Matthew 8, verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and he says, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This is what things are like when you trust in Jesus Christ for cleansing. There's no waiting period for those who come to faith in Jesus. Jesus cleanses immediately, freely, willingly, Then Jesus says to this leper, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. A lot of speculation around why Jesus gave this man these instructions, but it seems 
quite clear at the end of verse 4 that this man was to go to the priest because this is what Moses commanded. And in doing so, the priest certainly would have marveled and said, how could this happen? How could this actually occur? How did you become clean? How was this eradicated? It was all the more proof that one was among them who was God, very God. Additionally, I think it was also important that as Jesus came as this teacher, there were many who accused him of trying to overthrow Moses and the prophets. This sign also would have shown that far from that, Jesus comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law, dear friends. He is the one who acted at every point in obedience to God's word. He is one who lived a sinless, perfect life. Because what is the fact? All of us have broken it. And without being perfectly obedient, then he would not have been a perfect sacrifice for sin. And we aren't told this in Matthew, but if you look at the other Gospels, one thing that happens in this text is that this man was disobedient. He did not immediately go and show himself to the priest, but immediately went and he told others, his friends, his family members, what happened. Coincidentally, this is what happens. Jesus ends up taking his place in that here was a leper once rejected by society and banished. Now he's accepted in. But because of his testimony of what Christ has done, it is no longer going to make it possible for Jesus to continue to do ministry in the area because of the fame that would spread about him. So this man is accepted into society, and in some sense, Jesus himself then is rejected. He has to move on. He cannot do his ministry. Obviously, God's sovereignty covers all of that. God's providence is at work in the midst of that. Matthew doesn't record the rejection because, again, here is the main emphasis for him. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king. And at the end of the day, dear friends, that's what we need to remember. Jesus Christ is king. He is God, very God. He is the one sent from heaven. He is the offering, the substitute in our place that each and every one of us, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, Jesus Christ is king. And if you bow down and you acknowledge him as such today, here is the hope that you can have eternal life, that you can have cleansing. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.